So this is my first Sunday, at least back in this sanctuary after summer vacation. We had uh, a really interesting time last week, joining together with three other churches uh, at DeWolf Park. Uh, just a really neat public witness that that was to be out uh, out on a beautiful day, right, with people you know walking and jogging through and you know playing in that area. And so uh, we might be able to make even more of that in a in a future year. But but boy, it's good to be back here and to see your faces, hear your your voices lifted up again. And you know, during summer vacation, my family's church attendance is obviously a little different than the rest of the time when I am required to be here. Uh, you know, sometimes we still come on vacation. Yeah, it's our, it's our church. We want to be here. We want to have our kids here. Um, sometimes, though, it's, it's hard for me to be here and not work when I'm here. So sometimes we'll go visit another church or two when I'm on vacation and just see what they're up to. Sometimes we're traveling and it makes it tough on a, a one, or, one or two weekends to, to get out to somewhere. But there is one week Sunday each year when I play hooky, when I'm on vacation. <laughs> this is confession time, I guess. See, there, usually the very first week that I'm off, I will get up on that Sunday and I will decide not to go to church. And I think, I think it's just kind of wanting to have a taste of what everybody else has, right? The choice. And maybe that sounds strange. But there's something important about making the decision to come and worship as part of a congregation you join yourself to, not out of habit, not out of guilt or obligation or because they pay you, but for the real reason that you come, for the why. Why are you here today? It's a beautiful day. When I drove here, there were people out washing their cars, there were people out walking their dogs. You could be having coffee with a friend or, or sleeping in or watching a movie, you know, painting little model trains somewhere. I don't know, whatever, you know, kind of thing fires you up. But you chose to be here, or maybe you're watching online, or maybe you're going to make time, some time other, another part of this week to, to still tune in and see what was going on and connect to that. You know, why do that, especially in a time and an age when fewer and fewer people are making that same choice? Is it because it's been a habit for many years? Because that's where a lot of your friends are and you want to see them each week? Because you believe it will score you some points with God? Maybe you can cash that in later for something? Because other people are depending on you, sometimes that's what, what gets us in. I know it's not because of the preacher's raw charisma, but there are lots of other possible reasons that people might, might come on out. And there are many positive things that come from being part of a church community. I mean, if you want to live longer and be less lonely and be emotionally healthier and happier and have a stronger marriage and have your kids be more resilient and well-adjusted, there is loads of research that will say that your odds go up if you get yourself to church regularly. But should that be the, be the main reason? What is your why? And as we start to regather from the summer, as we enter this fall season, this first fall where we're in this, truly in this new normal, in this kind of post-pandemic time, after all of these disruptions and challenges we've lived through, I thought that could be a good place for us to start. And to do that, I'm going to take a little bit of inspiration from John chapter 6, which uh, in another minute or two I will read a section of. But this chapter begins, because we have to kind of know what happens before. So it begins with a miracle, with Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. This is the only miracle included by every gospel author, so it might be important. And that's when Jesus took a few loaves and fish and uh, blessed them and had his disciples distribute them to this hungry crowd who didn't want to leave because they liked hearing Jesus' teaching, but they were, you know, were going to have to if they didn't have food. And so everyone eats their fill and the basket after basket of surplus comes back. And in this impossible, miraculous way. 
And Jesus' miracles were meant to be signs. They were signs of his divine status and authority. They were meant to help people believe in him. But this particular crowd, they actually got really fired up about Jesus in the wrong way. They thought, let's start a revolution right here and now. We should grab him and declare that he's our new earthly king. And Jesus, that was not, was not his goal. He, so he actually kind of went up into the hills to avoid that. He headed for the hills. But they kept looking for him. So then Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee. And most people would use a boat for that. But Jesus decided he'd do the first few miles on foot because Jesus is not most people. But then after he rescued his 12 disciples from a storm, they, he got in their boat, they all reached the other side. And the crowd still didn't give up. They kept looking for him. Some of them crossed, got their own boats. Sorry. In case you weren't awake. They got their own boats. They crossed the sea. And they, and they caught up with him. Probably at a synagogue in, in a city called Capernaum. And, you know, then something changed. Something pretty important changed about their opinion of Jesus when he continued to teach them some things. And I don't want to preach two sermons by doing every bit of this chapter, but there was a problem that caused this change of perspective, what the, what the young people would call a vibe shift today. And uh, what happens is Jesus is basically, he keeps challenging them to look a little deeper, to think spiritually, to turn their hearts to him in faith. And a lot of the crowd is actually not interested in that. This was not their why. This was not what was causing them to follow him around. Some of them were following him for the miraculous buffet. <laughs> When's the next uh, feast coming? Some of them have political motivations. They want to they install him as, as king. They want to use him as part of their battle against Rome. Some of them are deeply religious. Actually, pretty much all of them are deeply religious, but some of them thought, well, I think he's probably got a new way for me to work in myself into God's favor. Because so they, they keep asking him, what work can we do to please God? And Jesus keeps saying, the, the work is to believe in me. The work is your faith in me. But that doesn't compute for some of them. And Jesus claims to be offering eternal life. But to have this life, Jesus says, you need me. You need to have faith in me. Abide in me. You join your life to mine so that it becomes part of you. Faith and spiritual formation are involved in this. And Jesus explains some of this with some challenging language. He's actually kind of deliberate in using some language that's controversial or, or confusing to see if, will they stick it out? Will they listen? Will they try to understand? Will they, you know, move past their way of thinking and open up to mine? Because he even talks about having, being the bread of life and they would have to eat his flesh. And that did not go over so well. So now let me read from John 6, verse 61 through 69. And that'll come up on the screen, but if you want a moment to pull that up in your Bible, John chapter 6, starting at verse 61. That's that moment where you hope that was the glass of water from today and not from, like, June. <laughs> but, <laughs> tastes okay. I think we're all right. All right, John six sixty one. From God's word we read that aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, all this stuff we just talked about, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? And some of them, some of us, it does. Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? As in heaven. The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. 
For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. And he went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. And from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. So that's what Jesus has to say to his wavering followers. He didn't plead for them to stick with him. He actually kept pushing them to expose their motives, to force them to answer why were they really pursuing him. And their reaction revealed who was following Jesus because of they had faith in him or they desired to experience that faith in him as the Christ and who believed, that, uh, you know, believed everything he was teaching and then who had some other reason. And the final straw, I think, was when Jesus said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. People don't come to faith in Jesus all on their own. It is an act of God's grace that makes it possible to believe and follow Jesus. But to be Christians, we also have to participate in this. We must choose to embrace Jesus, choose to commit ourselves to him and to his way as God enables us. And by telling people this, Jesus' very religious Jewish audience, he was really kind of saying, look, if you're not moved to genuine faith in me, well, then you might not know God at all. And this caused many of those following him, including some who had seemed to be very committed disciples, to turn away. They were done with Jesus. Not everyone, of course. The 12 disciples remained. I imagine there were at least a few others, although it doesn't say. But it was the 12 that Jesus turned to when he said, do you want to leave too? And I can imagine a pretty awkward silence after that for a few moments at least, until Peter, who was you know, brave and sometimes a little full of bluster, is the first one to speak up. And I think every Christian should commit what he said to memory. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And that's it. That's what Peter knows. He may not always know exactly what Jesus is saying or know what he's supposed to do right now or know what they're, where they're going to be next week or next month or next year, but he knows that Jesus is the Holy One of God. He has the words of eternal life. And so staying may not be easy, but there is no better place to go. There's no other true source of life and hope, not the kind that Peter is after, at least. Now, this scene struck me a bit when I was attending the Oasis Conference this year. It was something I did in August. Uh, it's the annual gathering of the Canadian Baptists of Atlantic Canada. That's our denomination, our larger church family, uh, along with about 400 and other, 450 or so other Baptist churches across the Atlantic provinces. And of course, unsurprisingly, all, all or almost all of those churches had struggles and challenges through these past two and a half years. You know, they had more loosely connected people kind of drift away in that time, had some people shift online who don't seem to want to unshift back for different reasons, had people pass away, people move away, people leave because of disagreements about COVID policies and the politics that surrounded all that. And we have experienced many of those things as well. And that can strain and discourage the committed core people of a church. And so I can only imagine what's going through the minds of Jesus' 12 disciples, because think of just the roller coaster that they're on here. 
Right? Jesus does this amazing miracle, and the crowd is so excited, and Jesus' fame is growing, and his movement is getting bigger and stronger, and they think, wow, I'm at the heart of something huge. Right? What big thing is going to happen next? And then Jesus deliberately chases most of those followers away by telling them, look, this is not going to work if you don't have the right motivation, unless you are willing to live in an entirely different sort of life that will be costly in certain ways. And then Jesus asks if they're going to stick around. Having gone from the high to the low, do you want to keep following me? Knowing that there's no fame or fortune, there's no power or glory going to happen in this. In fact, danger and pain and sacrifice are just over the horizon. Do you want to leave? It's where the rubber hits the road. If they're going to keep following Jesus, they had better know why. Why would they want to do that? Why would they think it will be worth it? If you're not familiar with uh, TED Talks, they're these relatively short lectures that are usually very informative and engaging by experts in their field. They're filmed at conferences and posted on YouTube. They're by lots of people, not just people named Ted. And uh, one of the most, that was the, boy, that was a preacher joke. Okay, one of the, <laughs> one of the most watched uh, TED Talks uh, from way back in 2009, which is a long time for YouTube things, uh, is uh, by a business leadership guru named Simon Sinek, and it's called Start With Why. And the main thrust of his talk is that people and organizations which succeed and thrive begin with why, and then they move on to what and to how. What you believe is what makes the difference. And he gives a couple of examples, but one of them is the example of, of the, that race to achieve powered flight, right? And that involves someone you've never heard of, Samuel uh, Purpoint Langley, all right? And you don't know Samuel Purpoint Langley's name, but when the race was on to create the first royal working airplane, he was the, he was the man that America expected was gonna accomplish that goal. You know, Back then, people knew his name because newspapers followed him around. He'd been given this huge grant from the War Department to work on this project. He was the secretary of the Smithsonian Institute, so he knew all the smartest people. He could bring them all in. He could pay them. He could get them going on this project. But he didn't succeed. It didn't work. We don't know his name. And it has to do partly with the why. His why was to be first, to get the achievement, to get the, to get the glory. And that did not inspire the people around him. Meanwhile, you have Orville and Wilbur Wright, whose names you do know. And they had a different why. They had a vision of how aviation was going to transform the world. And they wanted to be the ones who would bring that, who would help that along, who would bring that into being. And this inspired them and the people who helped them. And despite the fact that their only funds came from running their little bicycle shop, despite the fact that neither them or anyone else around them had a single college degree, despite the fact that there was no publicity, no nothing going on with what they were doing, they, uh, they achieved what their goal far faster and uh, far more fully than Mr. Purpoint Langley or many of the other people in other parts of the world and across the United States who were all trying to do the same thing. The why was what got them there. Sinek also used the example of Martin Luther King's famous address in Washington, D.C. You know, and at a time when there were, there were no Facebook advertisements, there was not a lot of there was no, they didn't send flyers or anything, but he, he went to Washington and 250,000 people came to hear him speak to them. And Dr. King told them, I have a dream, not I have a plan. You know, people are captivated by the, the why, the pers and his why was this pursuit of a more just society, this belief that things could change for the better and that that would be good for everyone. 
the why. Let's, let's bring that one back to us now. <clears throat> right? Why am I, why are you here? Why are we here? And listen, because I have no problem at all. This is not a, a guilt thing. If people are here because of certain relationships or a desire for community or a feeling of acceptance, church should absolutely be a place where people can belong even before they believe. There is no problem with that. But let's look to Jesus here, who often asked people to go deeper. He challenged them to address the spiritual side. Jesus was willing to lose his following, to send away and disappoint and even make these people hostile to him if that meant that the people who were left had the right why. He wanted them to understand and believe that he had not come to give them a plan for how to gain eternal life from God by doing certain things. He had come to be the source of eternal life for those who would put their faith in him. And Peter managed to express this why awfully well. Often when Peter blurts something out, it's not that bright. But this time, he nails it. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So why not stay home and watch TV, right? Why give time and resources to a church community? Why seek God and cultivate personal spiritual practices Why worship? Why live differently than the people around us? Because if Jesus is the Holy One of God, then nothing else makes sense. To whom shall we go to tend to our souls, to guide us, to comfort us when we're in distress, to give us hope for our future? Does the world have enough comforts and luxuries and therapists and medication and self-help to make you whole and give you purpose? And maybe it's just me, but our world seems to be making people more and more stressed out and impatient and distracted and aimless and disconnected all the time. And to whom shall we go to have life, real life, fullness of life, eternal life that gives us faith for a future beyond this short stay on earth? And look, this fall is not off to an easy start, is it? Two members passed away just since we hit the end of August, beginning of September. I know people are feeling those losses and it's quite a few others just in this past year. That's hard. We have a small group of leaders trying to make a lot happen. It's, and, you know, as we try to get going again as a church, this is a, a big building to look after. It's important to have a meaningful ministry here to justify it. There's a lingering fatigue and disorientation that many people are still carrying with them through the pandemic. And if you're connected to the larger church world, especially online, it's not hard to feel discouraged or disillusioned by the failings and the bad examples of Christians and Christian leaders, which are documented so quickly and fully these days and, uh, and often you know, yelled to the masses without ever looking at the good that's happening in so many other faithful places. This makes it an awfully good time to know our why. And John's gospel points us right to Jesus, that we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Just imagine for a moment that you're given an amazing golden opportunity. Your neighbor sees you one morning and says, I see that you get up and you go to church every Sunday. Why do you go? They're asking your why. What would you say? Well, my church has a nice building, the chairs are comfortable. It's a lot of paved parking. They've got a new assisted hearing system there. You know, I have friends there. It's, it's, it's a good thing to do. That's what good people do, right? It's, it's what I've 
always done. It's what I've been trained to do since I was a child. Right? No, some of those things are good, but none of those is a why. None of those are going to make any normal person say, oh, well, can I come with you then sometime? I mean, those, those comfortable chairs sound really compelling. <laughs> People have comfortable chairs at home. Your why is what you believe. I believe life is better with Jesus. I believe that Jesus is the loving Savior he claimed to be. I believe that following Jesus makes me a better husband and father and worker and friend and causes me to do good in the world. I believe that Jesus gives me encouragement and hope when things are tough. I believe that Jesus calls me to be part of a community that knows and follows him. And I believe these things are still true, even on those days or even in those seasons when I'm not feeling it. Because right? I believe in a God that can transform a person or change a circumstance in an instant. But the deep and powerful spiritual work that God does in our hearts usually happens over time. It takes a pattern of life. It takes a consistent commitment. You need to be religious about it, oddly enough. Because you don't go to the gym one day and then come home and look in the mirror and see that you suddenly don't have row on row of rippling muscles and decide that the gym lied to you and exercise is a fraud. It was Eugene Peterson who once described the Christian faith as a long obedience in the same direction. And there's an awful lot to that. I don't have three points of application here. Just an opportunity for you to check on your why as we get going again. Why follow Jesus? Why belong to his church? Why commit yourself to this church? The why makes the difference in whether or not your faith brings you gratitude or obligation whether it is a joy or a chore, whether you're willing, uh, willing to put Jesus first over so much that competes for our worship each and every day. And a lot of people don't know their why. People outside the church, some people inside the church. You know, that's something that people wish they had, a compelling why. And we honor God when we know and can express ours.